the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Live again on November 4th, 2018. I'm Martin Sobretti. I'm here in Round Rock, Texas. Uh, we're video casting on Facebook Live, Chalcedon's Q&A and Little Meat of the Word, where we take your questions, some of them sent in advance, and uh, answer them. And then we take live questions thereafter. So, as is our custom, we'll go ahead and proceed. Also a reminder, uh, we have a Book of the Month Club tomorrow. Uh, and if you have not yet signed up, it's a very short book. You can still uh, read it between now and tomorrow and get the benefit of the Book of the Month Club. That will be uh, led by uh, uh, Andrea Schwartz and Mark Rushtuni discussing Freud, R.J. Rushtuni's uh, fascinating study about Freud and his impact on the modern world uh, and its uh, impact that we need to understand. So by all means, get with that if you haven't signed up. Well, the first question that came in, is uh, Martin, Proverbs 24, verses 4 to 5 is hard to grasp. Can you give me a real-world example? Let's take a look at the text. It's actually in the middle of some uh, dice stitches, as they say. Yeah, thank you for that ground control. Uh, it, because the verse 4 starts, And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So you really should just, uh, take uh, verse 3. Uh, because there's a contrast with the whole verse, chapter 24, beginning with, oh, Do not be envious against evil men, neither desirous to be with them. For their heart studieth destruction, their lips talk of mischief. Through wisdom, here's the contrast, verse 3, is in house builded, and by understanding is it established, and by knowledge shall the chambers be filled, the chambers of the house, be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So there's an establishment of righteous wisdom and uh, understanding and knowledge, and then continues with verse 5, a wise man is strong, yea, a man of knowledge increaseth strength. Now, the original Hebrew here is a wise man is in strength. In other words, he stands in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands in the strength of Jehovah. And uh, this is the nature of the strength. It's not so much that it's internal, it's that it is derivative, and he arrives at it through knowledge and wisdom. A wise man is stands in strength, yea, a man of knowledge increaseth strength. Now, uh, that calls to mind the thought in Isaiah 40, I put a tab on that, where it reads um, in verse 28 to 31, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, in other words, has perpetual strength, his strength is in himself, his life is in himself. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the Isaiah's uh, reflection of the thought in uh, Proverbs 24 uh, to the effect that the, the wise man standeth in strength, and his strength is 
not his own. It belongs to God, and God increases strength. That's therefore, this notion of increasing might, increasing strength, is parallel between the Isaiah 40 passage and the other. As far as uh, examples of this, the, uh, it kind of mirrors that thought in um, Ecclesiastes that the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, etc. Um, and in this instance, human wisdom and diligence, or you know, I would call it consecrated and sanctified wisdom and diligence, knowledge of the Lord, does take precedence. And an example given by uh, Spence and Excel in their commentary were Hannibal and Napoleon, two examples of extreme strength. Uh, and uh, But how did things go with that? So uh, those would be some of the uh, practical applications. Uh, indicative that simply having all the might and power in the world does not necessarily overcome uh, a much better, wiser plan of uh, tactics. So it's not to the, to the strong necessarily, as we conceive it on the human plane, that the victory is given. God is going to give it. In fact, this is the whole point in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, which will achieve the victories for the Lord God of hosts in the realm of the, of the living that we are in. So... All I have to say, we want to make sure that you know, we people or populate our home, our mental uh, furniture, if you will, is all divine wisdom and uh, divinely rooted in uh, knowledge. So the knowledge of the scriptures, that, of course, increases understanding and light and, in essence, strength, too. So that's an important point. Thank you, Ground Control, reminding again that you need to register to participate in uh, tomorrow's Book of the Month Club where we discuss Freud with Mark Rushduni and Andrea Schwartz. Now, if there's more to be said about that passage, uh, we certainly can go into it. But uh, the essence is, I think, that since it follows on the heels of how the house is built and filled with wisdom, then therefore that knowledge is the source of the strength, knowledge of the Lord. Uh, all the good things come from that and radiate outward from the truth. And the truth, God leads the truth to victory, and justice to victory, justice to truth. The contrast between Isaiah 42's statement and the quotation in Matthew 12:20. The next question was interesting here. Hey, Jay Vincent Gardner, it's good to have you here. Uh, I will take that question as soon as we finish all the um, ones that were sent in advance, and we'll roll back the scroll and catch up with the live questions. But tithing is an interesting question, to say the least, and controversial. Uh, this is from my friend Kevin Amundsen. Ephesians 3.9 says that Paul was given the grace to proclaim good news among the nations and to cause all to see. He's using the Young's uh, literal translation, Robert Young's translation. Let's see, the um, King James renders it thusly. Notice how it starts. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. And I think verse 10 is critical to it as well. Uh, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold or multiform wisdom of God. Again, wisdom is at the heart of this. So because this verse starts with an and, we are not at liberty just to, to forget what happens right before in verse 8. So verse 8, we do need to make a point. Actually, it's a, as is Paul's want, it's a long sentence with a com complicated thought stream. But the point is that it was not known in other ages that the Gentiles, verse 6, should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So now, here's the context. He's preaching and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. 
to preach the unsearchable uh, riches of Christ and to make all men see. Now, consequently, this would then be the point, is that if he was only preaching to the Jews, then this would be a very um, insular religion, parochial, hidden off in a corner, restricted to the one nation. But it's not. It's now those barriers are being broken down, and instead, uh, all men are being called to repent. So the point there in verse 10, then, is to make all men see, not just Jews see, and certainly not the Gentiles, but all men. So in this case, we would probably uh, agree um, with St. Amillennial this to would almost always take a case like this to say this simply means both kinds of uh, people, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and in this instance, I, I don't have any heartburn over adopting that position because there are many other cases where you can't take it that way in the fact that a strong post-millennial message is there. But I also call them as I see them, and in this instance, I don't think that we want to try to extract a post-millennial reading from here when it is alien to the intent of the passage. Uh, there's plenty of other passages within uh, Ephesians where we get a post-millennial doctrine as well as the other uh, letters of Paul. So in this instance, I think it's important to say that it's not so much that uh, all will be certainly not told by Paul personally, but rather that his proclamation is that all men, not just the Jews, would have it. So he's being sent specifically to the Gentiles. I just saw a little um, glitch in the matrix there. I hope nothing happened on the broadcast. Never can tell nowadays with uh, modern technology. So that's important here. Uh, and verse 10, which follows on from Kevin's question, uh, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, in other words, to the angelic forces, to them would be made known. That's interesting. So we are, in essence, truly that theatron. We are a, uh, a made a show of things uh, to the intent that they would be able to see the multi or the manifold or the multiform wisdom of God. That is God's wisdom executed in many different ways. It's not just his wisdom in mercy, but also his wisdom in justice and his wisdom in truth and in goodness and uh, all the other attributes of God are to be manifested in the world that he's created. So there's high drama in this passage in Ephesians, especially as it moves into the 10th verse from the 9th. But uh, the whole point there is that to make all men, not just Jews, see it. There are other passages where uh, this approach to the text saying, oh, well, uh, Paul is simply arguing not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles together, and we cannot draw any other conclusions, is falsified. Uh, in fact, the, um, then we really are playing an evasive game. But we gain nothing as post-millennialists to try to extract post-millennial doctrine out of a verse where it isn't there. Uh, and we lose nothing by being honest about this verse, verse and saying you know, it doesn't touch on the post-millennial question per se. It's indicative of what Paul's awareness of his own mission is and in, in accordance with he's uh, shaping it and framing it for uh, canonically for our knowledge. So I think that would be the best understanding rather than trying to um, put it in the service of any eschatology it's actually more interested in people and uh, the dividing, uh, the removal of that wall of partition and the consequences of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. So it's going to all men uh, in terms of all kinds of men uh, that approach that I would think is adequate and as correct for Ephesians 3.9 does not apply to other passages where say a uh, post-pessimillennialist will say, aha, see, there's another passage where you should... Uh, yield your victorious note and look at the passage exegetically tightly and say no in the context this is saying something about all men uh, and the proclamation of the gospel and its success worldwide that's a whole different story so next question is interesting 
believe it comes from Roger Oliver. In his commentary on Daniel, referencing the last verses of chapter 11, page 77 following, which is uh, the book, Thy Kingdom Come, Studies in Daniel and Revelation, perhaps Ground Control can put a link up to it. Rushdoony writes that in the Christian era, civil government and international affairs will largely be characterized by a struggle between the legalistic state and the organic state, or the organistic state, sometimes Rush uses that phrase. Furthermore, a syncretism of the two will infect the church through the civil government. Please elaborate a bit on the organic state and the syncretism of the two in the church. So in an organic state, in both these cases of the organic and legalistic state, by organic we mean that it uh, roots its power in metaphysics. In other words, it has a God in the system. Uh, and they usually mean that there is no distinction between the creator and the creature. They talk about the chain of being. And so uh, if you evolve enough, you will become divine like a king, say. So the divine right of kings, they're on the scale of being between here and up there. Uh, and uh, under that notion, then, uh, say the pharaoh, he embodies the highest form of evolution, uh, the attainment of being um, an Egyptian, therefore he's ranked as a god. Uh, so too in all the other uh, various organic religions where the state essentially uh, is the muscle behind a particular religion and, and forces it uh, and its claims upon the people under its domain. So there's always a religious or semi-religious component to the organic uh, state because it grows naturally out of a religion and a, usually it's a power religion. Uh, where there's a God to appease and there's a God to uh, that you call upon to help you level other nations and make war and you sacrifice to him and every on national national life is oriented around that God and then the state becomes the handmaiden of that God uh, and so that's what the organic state is Rome kind of done did away with that because at first off it had all these other religions under it uh, including its own and it lost faith in its own gods but what they didn't lose faith in was law the principle of we are a nation of law. So law and ethics was to rule, and that was supposedly the Roman um, gift to the world was the concept of law and rule by law. Uh, and therefore we established law is higher and ruling over all these various godlings, all the various gods that were in and incorporated into Rome as it conquered territory after territory. He said, well, you can keep your religion as long as you put your uh, uh, incense on the censer and say Caesar is Lord, Caesar is ultimate, Caesar and his laws rule. Uh, so consequently, uh, you have these two different notions of the state, one that is driven by law, in other words, some uh, abstract concepts over here which uh, everyone must bow down to, or you ha have a, a concept of an organic state where it's um, pulled together and grows out of a religious commitment, say, to a given false god, uh, the god of the Moabites, the god of uh, the Syrians, say, Rimmon, who was the main god of Syria at the time of Elisha, for example. So there are examples that we can give of the organic state. Um, and uh, Israel was, uh, now the difference with Israel, of course, is that they were to acknowledge the difference between the creator and the creature. And Van Til brings this out constantly that, uh, and as does Rashtuni, there is no link between the creator and the creature uh, except Christ Jesus. There is the union of the human and the divine but without confusion or error mixture of the two natures. And that's the key. That means that there is no divine right of kings, there is no basis for the organic state, and there is no basis for the legal state. Right off the bat, we read in Psalm 94.20, the wicked frame mischief using law. The legal state is a mechanism by which mischief can be framed, can be institutionalized in a society, and that creates and wreaks havoc. 
So you have these two different forms of uh, power religion, one based on the raw power of the state as, an, as a using law, abstract law as its principle, uh, simply because the state says it, you have to obey it, that's it. That's power religion. Yet it may be a non-theistic or humanistic state. Uh, but nonetheless, that means that man, or, or the idea of men, as C.S. Lewis brings out in his novel, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, that is elevated to the highest point. And so you kind of divinize men, make them divine in the process, or at least certain men, the elite, become uh, very much so. And Rushdoony makes some interesting observations about the placement of the um, fortress that's in opposition to God. It's positioned between, or midpoint between, the mountain, which is believed to be the mountain, say, of Mount Zion, uh, Moriah, the, where God's temple would be, and the sea. And he says the sea would represent the people's uh, civil government, things like that. And then, uh, in other words, the Gentile nations, unbelief at large, the political nations, and then the kingdom of God. So he says, so between the civil state and the church, this is exactly where the attack against the people of God originates. It takes a medium position, a position between church and state, and tries to uh, balance those two. In other words, it's a compromise. That's what syncretism is. It tries to bring together the um, politics of the mountain, Zion, and the politics of the civil state, the legalistic state and the organic state, and bring them together in the person, in this instance, is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, is, gets a lot of the attention in this passage in Rashtuni's book. However, he's not restricting the main lesson there. He says even today, uh, the same impacts are arising where people try to find a mediating position in other words, to quote Elijah, why halt ye between two opinions, right? Between Baal and Jehovah. And so to here is between the civil states of the United States, so the United States and Constitution and Jehovah. And he says that even churches are involved in this compromise. Syncretism plagues the church, infects it, contaminates it, poisons its witness, and therefore it always seeks to have this middle position to try to make both sides happy. And ultimately you cannot make both sides happy. You cannot be the friend of the world and the friend of God. And this is a lot of the point. That's exactly right, John. He can only serve one master. So that's the point that's being made there. Uh, Rushtuni, I actually have a little quote here I pulled from the book. That might be helpful if you don't have time to um, grab it and read that passage. Agnosticism or atheism will be the common religious attitude. Religion will be used rather than believed. That's the point that the, Russia, the, the Romans did. It will be used rather than believed. The organic societies were inevitably religious and with pantheistic tendencies. The legalistic societies born of Rome are inevitably in their development alien or hostile to religion, having a rationalistic and legalistic approach to life, giving primacy to ethics over metaphysics at their best. This kind of formal agnosticism and atheism, while apparent in Greece after its fall, best flourished in Rome and in modern society, which is legalistic like Roman orientation. So what happens then with the church is that instead of um, maintaining the prophetic voice in the face of the state that is compromised, uh, it seeks itself to drift toward compromise and syncretism, which syncretism simply means together belief, putting two hostile beliefs together and try to find a common ground where there isn't any. Yes, indeed, uh, Rashtuni does um, focus on that issue of syncretism in the book Chariots of Prophetic Fire and Ground Control. Let's put that up as well. Greetings to those in Joliet, Diane. Good to have you here. So, some of our uh, dear friends always touch, touching base with us. Okay.
Uh, again, it's a fascinating read. Dr. Rushdie is not around to ask questions, and he actually has nuanced his eschatology a bit differently by the time he wrote his systematic theology in 1994 uh, versus his early writings in 1970 on eschatology. Uh, all that to say he became more uh, convinced of the gospel conquest than he was when he started out writing on these topics. So there was more of a victorious tone in his later writings than in the earlier writings. Nonetheless, these are still insightful points. He's seeing something that very few people notice. And why do we not notice it? Because the fish doesn't notice the water it's swimming in. We are so compromised, we don't recognize that we're swimming in compromise. So when someone points it out, like he does, where's he coming from? was one of the very first books of Rushdie's I read was the, his commentaries on Daniel and Revelation. And I've read many commentaries in Daniel and Revelation. This one was a tough sledding. I mean, the concepts were alien and didn't sound like a commentary. And it took some several years for me to actually grasp that it's the best of all the commentaries on Daniel and Revelation because it saw actually what was going on <laughs> uh, and, and pulled out what was only under the surface for all the others. So it was the other guys that were superficial and Rushdie getting to the meat of the matter as opposed to a lot of people saying, well, Rushdie's inventing all this stuff. It's not there at all. Oh, it's there. And uh, part of the reason you can't see it is because you're fish in the water, and, you're, and the water is contaminated our ability to see it, and we're blind. Uh, good to have you with us, Robert. And everyone here is learning about reconstructions. Believe me, anyone who claims they've arrived, they've not arrived. Uh, Rushdie, you know, there was a great meme put out by uh, one of our folks who run the Facebook page to the effect that uh, he was just scratching the surface. And I keep saying that he said he that, and now we have it in a quote that makes it official. So it's not just Martin saying it off the cuff on a Sunday afternoon. It's official in a meme. <laughs> All right, next question. Given the climate that is pervasive on social media, by the way, that means hostile, toxic, that's what you mean. Uh, can you explain the difference between exhorting a brother when in error and demeaning him? Demeaning him. So... My general principle is uh, I want to win the brother. That's the whole point. And I might have to be patient about that depending on the nature of the error. And that could be, if it is, like they say, damnable heresies, then we obviously are going to need to be have stronger medicine applied quicker uh, as opposed to uh, patiently working someone through, um, say, an eschatological view or possibly a soteriological view or a view on the application of the, or the extent of God's law. Those things can be legitimately... Um, discussed. But the main principle that must apply um, is, is this, and Paul lays it down, let all things be done unto edification. If you're not building someone up in the process of the exhortation, it's not exhortation anymore. Um, now there can be warnings in the exhortation, but by being saying it's hortatory, as what the word exhort means from the, the concept, it really is uh, to try to breathe life into something and to uh, um, excite it and get it energized. Um, to exhort is you know, not just to drag down, but truly to, to build up. Uh, you want to exhort someone to keep studying something if you think they're on a path or say, hey, I, can, I can give you some materials that might help you see through this stuff, um, have benefit with this. But if you're simply going to say, that's not confessional, well, that might work in a confessional church, but not all churches are. Uh, uh, and for them, you're going to have to make the biblical case. You can't just argue it from a confession or a creed. So that becomes troubling at that point. And if, you're going to, and if you're trying to correct someone on social media, uh, one thing you have to do then is consider these consequences of the Matthew 18 principle, which is you start one-on-one -on -one and then two or three-on-one, and only then do we expand to the group. 
the church at large. And the reason, as Matthew Henry correctly states, is that we're trying to protect the man's reputation and allow him the opportunity to see the truth of the matter uh, as opposed to flaming them, which means you, in the middle of a large group, see something the size of the Reform pub, uh, which is big, thousands of people in it, you suddenly attack and call someone out uh, and go for the jugular at that point. Of course, now the, their inclination is to dig in their heels because now their reputation is under attack. Uh, so you've not won your brother. You've, you've proceeded in such a way that instead of going into a private message mode, say, hey, let's have a, a private message discussion with you on this. At least if you're going to do this versus calling out on the phone or face-to-face, -face, uh, do not be cleaning someone's clock theologically in a large group. Uh, I've had several occasions where I would then pick up the phone or go to a private message as opposed to uh, exposing an error directly and allowing then that person to make this call and come back through and say, I've rethought this and had some good counsel and I'm going to change my view. So there's ways to get there without um, driving a nail through someone's temple. And uh, it's best because you want to have that brother recovered. If, you're, if that's not your mission, if your mission is simply to look good as um, sons of thunder wiping out all heresy with a single bound, uh, that's going to, you'll have to be called on the carpet by God for that because I'm not going to be able to tell you anything other than he's going to say, these weren't edifying things. Uh, and no one disputed that these people were had errors, but I also instructed you how to deal with those situations. There's a right and a wrong way to approach it. And social media, of course, brings out the worst in everybody. So it takes some measure of discipline even to operate on Facebook and not involve yourself in fights. Remember, there's a reason that the proverb says, you know, uh, like he who grabs a dog by two ears is he who meddles in a quarrel not his own. How many people are more than intent on boom, zooming in there, uh, saying, I'm a peacemaker. Boop. Well, are you a peacemaker or are you a meddler? And that's the question, right? And the results normally indicate not peacemaker. Uh, can't argue with the results if everything explodes and implodes on you. Okay. Uh, two more questions. This the first one's a part two. Uh, actually, it's one more question. Came across a theory, this is also, I think, from Roger Oliver, called evolutionary creationism that combines creative exegesis of Genesis 1.11 with acceptance of evolution. Looks to me like a new name for theistic evolution. The young man I mentor on occasion is toying with this idea and said he could not see how evolution would undermine a Christian's worldview. Of course, an evolutionary worldview is where process and not act uh, um, is ultimate, right? Under an evolutionary mindset, everything is in process and flux, and so chaos that this does all the assembly is ultimate, and it's actually ultimate over God. Uh, so you actually, it is not a Christian worldview, even by definition, if it's evolutionary. Um, so, but setting aside that issue between process and act, between the act of creation and the process of evolution, uh, and then the implications for a God who is subject to process, and we get process theology for a reason, uh, which is a huge deviation from the faith once delivered to the same. So let's just keep going on with the, the point here. He also asserts that a literal six-day creation is not part of orthodox Christianity. That is a fairly recent movement. Of course, he's picking these ideas up from other folks. Uh, and uh, occasional quotation from a handy fellow like Augustine, say, who uh, did not think that there was, he thought that, any arbitrary time, including instantaneous creation of everything in one second, would have been just as valid. But nonetheless, he argues that the councils did not deal with it and quotes Warfield as saying these matters are of no real importance. His major source is a Canadian professor, Denis Lamoureux, 
who has written a book defending his position, Evolutionary Creation, A Christian Approach to Evolution. Two-part question. How would you respond to my young friend's assertion? And two, how you mean, would you respond to the assertion that a literal six-day creation is not part of Orthodox Christianity? So if we uh, then we could say, well, you know, the, the for, uh, formula that Christ is two natures in union but without intermixture is not a part of Orthodox Christianity because it wasn't stated until 451 A.D. Why wasn't it stated in 451 AD? Because we were, had previous creeds that were dealing with the various heresies that were cropping up uh, back then, and each one had to be confronted one at a time. So by it being attacked, the Orthodox being attacked by heresy, it allowed the Orthodox position to then frame it. So each advance in the statement of doctrine was in response to attempts to tear down the Orthodox position, and the Orthodox position had to be, make itself explicit each time. And it's this process of making it explicit that goes through time uh, so that we had uh, resolved the question of Christology by 451 AD. We were resolving soteriology at the time of uh, the Reformation. And right now we have issues related to theonomy, creationism, and these things now need to be made explicit. So the, the, he has a very, he seems to think that the church fathers were this once for a little there back then in the first several centuries, anti-Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. And if it's not in there, it's not ortho, part of the Orthodox faith. Uh, and the correct answer is whatever is not in Scripture is not part of the Orthodox faith. So by trying to repose all the authority in the in fathers, the patristic writings, uh, you've actually dislocated the authority from Scripture, and therefore you can play all sorts of havoc, wreak all sorts of havoc on our theology by trying to put the, the, the uh, root of the authority of it not in Scripture, in the God of the Scripture, but rather in historical developments as the faith was being attacked. So we would take seriously current attacks and the fact that we would be dealing with uh, creationism evolution more explicitly. Why would we be dealing with evolution per se uh, until geologists started to talk about long ages, geological ages? And this brings us to Warfield, who in fact was a student of geology before he became a theologian and kept his finger in the ge geology the entire time. Now, first, the questioner asked the young man that Roger speaks of, his mentoree, a mentee, I guess they call it, um, are they, aren't they not compatible? Well, Warfield said they're not. Warfield made it very clear. He says, whatever was created did not evolve, and whatever evolved was not created. It's one or the other. So if you have um, microevolution, which we all acknowledge happens because there's a genetic range within every organism's um, DNA and different things can be expressed in the next generation, uh, depending on other factors, and now we can have uh, parts of the uh, chromosome activated, the genes activated or deactivated, etc. So all these things are built into the structure. Uh, so moving from generation 28 to 29, there can be microevolution, and that was, did not mean that generation 29 of that bird was created ex nihilo out of nothing. No, it came, it was born from the previous birds uh, that laid the nest, uh, eggs in the nest from which that 29th generation was born. So when he changed in that bird, uh, due to the uh, difference, uh, different combinations of the genetic code there um, that are uh, capable for um, adaptation, uh, then that sustains, and we have then population shifts as a result. And the population that's better fitted for a certain area will be the one that's more likely to have his um, generation survive than others. But that's a tautology that doesn't necessarily grant any ground whatsoever to Darwin, uh, and certainly doesn't in my view. Uh, but the point there is, 
again, if it was created, it didn't evolve. And if it was a, if it's something that was evolved, then it was not created from absolutely nothing, right? So Warfield was uh, always, he was knowledgeable about what Lord Kelvin was doing with uh, attacking the geologists, um, showing, no, the Earth is not as old as you say it is. And then he started, um, Kelvin, this physicist, uh, putting together challenges, and Warfield kept his finger on that and was aware that it was not a slam dunk for the ancient ages of geology. Uh, so you cannot actually say Warfield said this and that was Warfield for all time. Warfield was shifting because he was in the middle of these battles. Uh, he died four years before the Scopes trial. It would have been interesting to know what his view on that would have been. But nonetheless, he was uh, came closer and closer to the position of creationism, and he certainly was not willing to see any compromise between the two positions. He, he rejected that entirely. So that would be uh, point one. And let's see, the other point, uh, yeah, if it's, um, we've covered the point here that if it's, you cannot just simply restrict orthodoxy to what came out of it, the anti-Nicene or the post-Nicene fathers back in the first several centuries. Uh, those are they called the early church councils for a reason, because they were living in the era of the early church. And technically, as Warfield pointed out, we're still in the era of the primitive church, which means we should still be having church councils and dealing with these things. We're rather way behind on that. Uh, as everyone here probably knows, and uh, a move to make that a difference there uh, would, be, uh, would probably bear fruit if handled correctly, assuming we had the character for it. We don't have the caliber of theologians today that we had back then. Uh, and, of course, it was a big deal back then. So, I do not believe that you can quote Warfield in favor of an evolutionary point of view. And these things are inherently unstable. What is happening, of course, is what I call a lust for credibility. The reason that an idea like this gains any ground is that people want to have their cake and eat it. They want to have position themselves between the mountain and the sea, as uh, Rashtuni takes Daniel 11, to have the syncretistic position in the middle that makes all sides happy. Of course, it should make no uh, hardcore evolutionist rationalist happy because he says you don't need this God in your system. That's a, a ham-fisted tack on, it's got to go, and it just shows that you guys aren't serious about the science. As opposed to uh, a serious Christian who is going to say the science is actually governed by the proper presuppositions in God's Word. And uh, we don't arrive at the truth of science until we take all the evidence together in its totality, including the counsel of God that speaks to it. And those who do allow God's Word to drive their uh, investigation of science uh, first off, there is no such thing as neutrality because if you're ruling God out, then of course you don't have a neutral position either. Uh, so the point is that there's two worldviews in contention, and the idea that you can have a the main point of the irrationalist, anti-Christian worldview and bring it in to the heart of Christianity and say all origins are based not on what the Scripture says at face value, but what we have now twisted the Scripture to say is a very dangerous point. Perhaps. Uh, Ground control can put up uh, the necessity for creationism, and uh, it's, it was featured on the front page of Faith for All of Life in the last five or six years. And uh, there's an important article that we reprinted by Dr. Reshtuni relatively early on, but it shows and sets the lie to the idea that there's any peace between these two positions. In fact, there's nothing but enmity and hostility between 
evolution and Christianity. And the only way that you can have peace is if you shoot the Christianity in the head and drag that corpse in and force its hand into the hand of evolution and say, see, they're buddies. But it's a dead Christianity at that point because it has all the trappings of some spiritual talk, mostly from the New Testament, and then all the rest is we need to fix it. Bible needs to be fixed. It is not clear. It's only clear when filtered through the word of man, through man's mind, through the writings of this Canadian professor. And he's the one who's going to deliver the Bible from uh, the Luddites who hold that it should be taken literally. So normally we see frontal attacks on fundamentalist notions. Um, now there's problems with fundamentalism insofar as it has the, we call it the heresy of omission. In other words, by saying only focus on these five or six points, that means all the rest of the points are given over to the devil, and that's not right either. So we need to say, no, no, no. We battle on all fronts. The wall of Jerusalem goes all of it up once at a time. We're not just building this part of the wall right here and ignoring this part of the wall. The entire wall goes up at once. Otherwise, it's not effectual. So we need to be on all fronts, all disciplines, all subjects, all topics, reconstructing them all. And uh, that's and evolution must therefore be dealt with as an attack on the biblical worldview, uh, which it is. So there's an antithesis, and when you try to just yield to it and say there's no comp, you're not going to go into a fight with an evolutionist if you say there is no fight. I'm going to yield all the ground to him. He can have it, except that I believe God's driving it. So now you've tacked, you've got your little tack on, and they'll just shake their head, and you will not find peace with them, uh, and you will not find peace with God because the words in Scripture are at war with the evolutionary mindset. You know, I have a, in Lange's commentary, John Philip, uh, Peter Lange, uh, published in 1912, German scholar, and he tried to get off the ground the idea of an Olamic language, Olam, Hebrew for eternity, and tried to make a claim that in Genesis we have Olamic language indicating and trying to justify long time spans. Uh, and he tried to inject, so he used this template and tried to force the template on scripture. And it was a truly a forced fit, but it made people happy. He said, oh, see, you know, we can have our cake and eat it. We don't have to be at war with the, uh, the modernists. We can be at peace with them and find something else to fight about. <laughs> but the matter is, where uh, God's going to get you where it most matters, and if the origins are wrong, then everything else falls apart. Because if I cannot trust the scripture, Genesis 1 to 11, and that's the point that Rashtuni brings to uh, uh, right, is a chapter from Mythology of Science, too. Thank you, Ground Control. Uh, you yield that ground and you are not being a faithful steward. It's necessary, uh, needful for a steward that they be found faithful, from 1 Corinthians 4.2. And if we're stewards of the Word of God, then the last thing we're supposed to be doing is yielding ground to the enemy on its meaning and content. Um, so we need to push back on against it. We don't suddenly take the other side's position and then become a traitor to the truth. And that is a dangerous thing to become a traitor to the truth, I believe. So the young man, I think, is on, in, uh, standing on a very dangerous, slippery slope because once you're standing there, everything else can yield. Most people who uh, end up apostatizing entirely, what's the usual starting point for that? Either they have contempt for God's law or they have contempt for the doctrine of creation. And they then buy the Darwinian concepts, and then that slides them down the path. Uh, so it's a very effectual tool on the other side if they can get you to uh, stop focusing on the God of created everything, and instead look at their interpretation of certain kinds of data and evidence. Okay, let me scroll back to some of the live questions then. I know some did pop up. There's the registration. Okay, uh, yeah, 
J. Vincent Garza asks, how has the tithe changed or transformed been heightened in the New Testament? Thanks. The um, biggest translation, I think, is going to we'll find our root meaning in that in uh, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 31, everyone probably know, knows, articulates the notion of a new covenant, right? And uh, that's the good news that we live under that new covenant. And then Jeremiah 33, let's see if I can find the passage. Oh. As the host of heaven, this is 33, 33, 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. So there's a difference here uh, with the, the covenant that is going to come, is that we have uh, unlimited or innumerable seeds of David and seeds and children of Levites. So the kingly and the Levitical domains are present in when we become Christians. So there's a Levitical component to what we all do. So then you have to then look at it. Those are the people who are following an explicitly Levitical path in terms of teaching the people of God. And then those would then be, rather than a um, genealogical grant of authority for teaching, as it was uh, with the 12th tribe of Israel there, Levi, uh, it is now through rebirth. So the New Covenant, all these come in, that weren't there before, and they are made and incorporated into Mount Zion, right? In Psalm 87, I shall announce um, these four nations, Egypt and Philistia and Tyre, Babylon is knowers of me, each and every man shall be born in her. So there's a, a change in the status when people are born and everyone becomes, in essence, a Levite. Um, so the, instead of the Levite being restricted to just one tribe, it is now globalized. And therefore, the Levitical tithe, therefore, can have, that has impact upon that, simply because of that nature. So you look for those people who are operating as Levites, and uh, then they would be given the full tithe. And then the main deal after that is articulated in Nehemiah 18, and, uh, I'm sorry, Nehemiah 10.38 and Nehemiah 18. Uh, a tithe of the tithe then goes to the priests, which is understood today to be institutional worship, the church proper. I don't believe there's been any change in the rejoicing tithe uh, or the poor tithe insofar as how we are to articulate them and the amounts that are due for those particular social maintenance funds. So the Levitical function was for education and health, and that should have its part to play today. And then the tithe of the tithe was to institutional worship, and the tithe was directed, and there's a whole book on this topic, of course, Tithing and Dominion by Rush Tooney. Uh, it would be the one that we would recommend on the topic. And if you're interested in the head tax, then the writings of Dr. Robert Fugate, which we published in Faith for All Life, would be useful in our for that. So all that to say, there's been a change, but it's simply that uh, it's not that there aren't any Levites to give to the, the, the vehicle tithe to. It's that you need to, there are plenty of them, and you need to seek out the ones that are worthy, right? Because we've had such things as bad Levites even in the era of the um, Old Testament. You know, they were Levites who didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, Malachi 2 is an indictment of some of them for that very thing. Okay. Okay. And uh, you don't see anything you disagree with Dr. Rushton No? Then we're pretty close to the same position there. Welcome from Chicagoland. Oh, wait a minute. All right. Syncretism. 
course, systematic theology. Someone's checking in from Clarksville, Missouri. <laughs> yeah, right. The peg through the temple. There's a time and place for that. Let me see if I can pin this one and see the whole thing. Two-party question. Two-part question, I guess. Regarding long-term struggles, do you agree with Sinclair Ferguson that both legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same coin and that they are both ways of justifying diverging from the whole counsel of the scripture? And if we cannot see a clear way to balance law and grace, and we cannot see the rest of that, unfortunately. So we got a whole seven lines. But um, Now, the reason that legalism is false is because it runs aground on 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, right? The law is good if used lawfully. There's such thing as a lawful use of the law and an unlawful use of the law. And so what legalism involves is an unlawful use of the law, where it is then transposed from the pattern of sanctification to a means of justification. So once you go down that path, then we are in a world of hurt. So the law is being abused and therefore discounted for its proper function in the Christian walk and life, and also in the life of the culture, which is to be salted by it. And antinomianism simply uh, it falls afoul of the problem of Matthew 5.19, that whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments and teachments, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that verse last week, and implications. So uh, one tries to uphold the law, but by using it falsely uh, for, for um, prideful purposes, ends up in Phariseeism, and the other rejects the law entirely. So both in the sense of being an abuse of the law or rejection of the law for its proper purpose, yes. Because the whole counsel of God does require that all the law be brought into bear. You must have all of it together. And the failure to resolve all of it and make a decision by omitting something important comes into play uh, throughout Scripture where uh, it doesn't take but a little leaven to leaven a lump. It doesn't take but a small error or a small misapplication of God's law to create big uh, consequences. One thing I mentioned over and over again is that Israel was of the opinion that since God was no longer enforcing the land Sabbaths, that it was cool to keep going century after century, breaking it. And they were wrong. After five centuries, God says, I've had it. Seventy years of broken land Sabbaths, I'm going to uh, exile everybody out of here, and my land shall enjoy her Sabbaths. So people thought God was winking at it. God never said he was winking at it. They were simply were misreading him. Um, in terms of that phrase in Ecclesiastes, I think it's 8.11, because sentence is not executed swiftly against an evil work, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Uh, so we misread God giving us space to repent. That's what God gives Jezebel in Revelation 2. I gave her space to repent, but she wouldn't do it. So oftentimes God's forbearance, which is, gives us opportunity to do the right thing, we use that and continue to persist in doing the wrong thing. All I'm going back to the original question is, uh, if Sinclair Ferguson is saying that they're both erroneous positions, he's true. It's true. Uh, what I would be concerned with is to the extent to which Sinclair Ferguson then <coughs> promotes the proper position, which would be one that I think uh, upholds the law of God and its validity today. Uh, and we find it very, very hard to find folks that are willing to go that far. Okay. Okay, and then uh, ground control pinned the rest of the question. If we cannot see a clear way to balance law and grace in a specific situation, it's better to err toward law or grace. I don't think law and grace are the balance. It must be the balance, after all. Uh, it's law and lawlessness and grace and, uh, versus works, right? So either justified by grace or justified by works. 
and we either are operating law lawfully or lawlessly. What we need to then come up with that's a little bit better language of possibly is when Jesus says that the weightiest measure of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. Now, mercy is a different story, and a lot of law is, in fact, representative of merciful actions toward people. Uh, and uh, it's like this. We're back to Hosea 8.12. I seem to come to this verse every other Q&A, where God says to Ephraim, I've shown him the marvelous things in my law, but they were seen by him as strange things. And so if the law of God is an alien thing to you, and why, why would we want to walk according to that? Uh, it's laughable. Once you're there, God's not going to be, your eyes are closed. You're not going to be able to see the marvelous things in God's law. And yet you won't understand why Psalm 119 was even penned by David when he spent 176 verses extolling the wonders of God's law. Uh, when I uh, taught the book of Revelation, required reading every week for every student, I said, don't show up if you didn't read it is you must read Psalm 119 through complete before you show up on Sunday morning for my class on Revelation. So if you continue to do this, you will understand the book of Revelation very clearly because you need to start building those glasses and the eye muscles to see what's going on in the book of Revelation and you see it through the law of God. So uh, if we start to give away points and say, well, that's Old Testament law, we've lost the battle already because we don't have any tools left after we throw that out. Okay, Bill Evans asks, can a Christian legitimately regard any civil magistrate who refuses to acknowledge Christ and the supremacy of the law as tyrannical? Well, tyranny is, of course, lawless rule. It's certainly possible that um, there's two points. Are they identified to a tyranny, tyrant, and what should you do about it? So this, it'd be, might, it'd be, what you might do about it might be very different depending on the situation uh, as opposed to simply saying, oh, well, he's a tyrant. I regard most people who hold political office as tyrants. Uh, but you are dealing with tyrants, and one needs to be prudent and wise dealing with that. This is where that passage in Malachi 3 comes in, which I seem to be also coming back to. It tells you something about the era that we're in, that the kind of questions that we get drives us back to passages that seem to fit the bill. Verse 3.13, Your words have been stopped against me, saith the Lord, and yet ye say, What have ye spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now ye call the proud happy, ye that wickedness are set up, those are your tyrants, ye that tempt, they that tempt God are even delivered, your tyrants, and get away with stuff. Then, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, say the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then ye shall return, and I turn between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So the point is that there's a time when uh, we then... Uh, hunker down and we discuss the matters and because God we're in a holding pattern as God says I'm going to do this and then I'm going to reveal the truth uh, so sometimes you don't just ride out there to battle foolishly uh, you make a point of seeing what's going on you need to be like the sons of Issachar everyone loves to quote from that passage first Chronicles 1232 who understood the sense of the times of what Israel ought to do and so what Israel ought to do might be a very different matter than are they tyrants because the definition again of tyranny is lawless rule Law, uh, and, of course, you had such a tyrant in Luke 18, the civil magistrate who feared neither God nor man and therefore would not give the importunate widow uh, deliverance from the person oppressing her. But she persisted and finally says, Though I fear not God nor man, 
yet this widow is wearing me out, so I will avenge her of her enemies uh, and give her deliverance from oppression. That didn't make him any less a tyrant for finally doing the right thing, I don't believe. Uh, it's, uh, in fact, a point of contrast between him and God. God is not like that civil magistrate. God does hear and does act on behalf of his people, for his saints. So, passing on this question, is there a significance that the apostles did not observe the Passover with their families instead with Jesus and each other? That is a very interesting point. Uh, I would have to uh, look into that because, of course, it, they were supposed, uh, certainly in the case of um, Peter, um, presumably he was married and uh, would have had children who were posing the question to the father, what means these things? So uh, it might simply be that, the pa that as a transitional meal between the Old Testament Passover and the New Testament Eucharist, uh, you have something very new happening in the upper room with that particular Passover. Because now the, Jesus is identifying the bread and the wine as significant factors to which the lamb was pointing forward. And so there could be that that was the very last legitimate Passover at the same time as the very first legitimate Lord's Supper. Uh, and therefore there was a, a transition at that point. So uh, without having access to the kind of resources I think are necessary to give a full answer, uh, my first observation would be it's more than just a Passover meal. There's something very, very unique happening in Jerusalem in that upper room as the church is being uh, prepared for the departure, the exodus of the Christ when he departs the world. Uh, and he takes away the sin of the world in the process. So something new happening there. Uh, and therefore, the bloody rites are different. Uh, we put away the, the blood uh, and the killing of the lamb, and now we have the bread. We move away from circumcision of bloody rite to baptism, for example. So these changes are arising because the Messiah is setting time out of order, if you will. Okay. What are some books that you recommend for a new Reconstructionist? A lot of it is where what they're interested in. If they're interested in economics, for example, then we would point them to areas of uh, Reconstructionist books that deal with economics, because what I'd like them to see is the idea expressed in Psalm 1996 that I've seen it into all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. In other words, the Bible's the law of scriptures and, and the Bible applies to all things. And so when they can see biblical ideas in action in the economic realm or in the medical realm or some other area, then that kind of is the, the foot in the door for them to say, okay, I'm getting it. I see it. I can see in this area where I'm interested in, where I have some knowledge, that the Christian Reconstructionist writings are able to then do two things. They mount an uh, internal attack of the opposing system, and then, so, um, which showed the falsehood of it, that that's built on a faulty foundation of sand, and then show what it would look like built on the rock. And so you then have this contrast as each area is being reconstructed. We can see what's wrong with it and what's, what the right thing is to replace it with. And then the idea that this process is eventual is a pro uh, long-term progress. Uh, I want them to see that this is not a revolutionary action. If you're taking up the side of Christian Reconstructionist, uh, you are preparing your grandchildren right now. That would be what you'd be focused on. Verse 20, love to tell this wonderful story. And I don't know why we, we don't hear more of it. I guess it was probably was in a, an easy chair tape somewhere, but it's, it's very powerful. And therefore, I can only paraphrase it because it's a little bit misty. But I, my, my recollection is that there was a man, I think it was a, uh, either Korean or 
a Chinese Christian in a church in Bay Area, if I remember right. Uh, and he uh, had raised up very, very devout children. Uh, and his house was in order. And so he was biblically astute, house in order, looked like a perfect candidate for eldership. And so the uh, people approached him and said, we'd like you to stand for elder in this church. And he said, I can't do that. We have to wait till the grandchildren are born and see how they turn out. If the grandchildren turn out right, then, and only then, can you say, I am fit to be an elder. That's his standard. Now, it's a high standard. Too bad we don't all have that high standard. We have very low standards for elders today. But Rushdunis thought this was an astonishing statement. And of course, 20, 30 years later, when the grandchildren proved to be godly and in their houses were in order to, then the man stood for elder. Then he could look God in the eye, if you will, and say, I, I did the right thing. I got even my grandchildren uh, because I he had such an impact on his children that that reached through the next generation into the grandchildren's lives. And that's how he knew he, rose, he, he uh, raised his children right. So you have to wait till the grandchildren to know. So we, of a very shallow character, find that a relatively laughable story rather than being very tearful about that, saying, how far have we fallen that this Korean Christian had it right and we have such a slap-happy view and, and, and raise all sorts of young men who probably can prove their own household is in order uh, to high office in church. That's just, just setting aside even what those offices should look like. Okay. Uh, scripture does not tell us that the apostles and Jesus were alone in the upper room, does it? I am not positive on that right at the moment. I'd have to look and see uh, what the story is. Somebody obviously served it, uh, and I don't know to what extent there were any, any other parties in it. And if you thought perhaps there was the possibility that uh, the children or the families were there, um, we can certainly look at that. Okay, here's the two-part question. It keeps coming back. Uh, maybe it's not coming back, but I'm just get to see it all. Okay, so books the recommended. So if we are at a complete loss and saying, okay, um, the fellow doesn't know what he likes. He doesn't know if he likes economics. He doesn't know if he likes politics. He doesn't know if he likes legal theory. Then you probably want to start with books like Law and Liberty. Uh, I think that'd be a very, very good starting point for uh, Christian Reconstruction. There's some primers out there that uh, have been written by pre previous uh, folks at Chalcedon. But you want to start it at a fundamental level. So if they don't have any particular, and just want to get the, the big picture, then I'd say Law and Liberty is probably one of the strongest books that you can start with. And then I think it's important to see Scripture uh, exposited from a Reconstructionist perspective, which is to say that it doesn't hesitate to see the Reconstructionist um, components in the Bible. Uh, too often we'll get a pietistic read, and we assume the pietistic read is the read, that that is exegesis, and it's not. Oftentimes we, uh, so it's nice to be able to go through a text of scripture and actually see it pulled apart and opened properly so that we can see what God's up to in this area. Uh, I know an individual who is uh, pouring over chapter by chapter the systematic theology by Rush Tooney and he's underlining it and he's got all his multiple color markers and then he goes out and he does uh, podcasts and he's applying it. I mean, most people don't think that you can apply this in a powerful, culture-changing way because eh, it's a systematic theology. But Rushdie's systematic theology is different because he explains all the interconnections that makes it applicable to today's current affairs and our and our crises of our time, and why we're facing these crises. Uh, like I like to say, he pops the hood. You can see the engine running when Rushdie's operating on this level. 
So that'd be another interesting book. Now, it's not an easy read, but it is a very rewarding read. Plus, we have some sleeper volumes out there that few people don't know about and yet are so powerful and useful. For example, Salvation and Godly Rule. It's a big, thick monster, and most people don't recognize it as one of Rushdoony's best works. Uh, so it sits there relatively ignored, and that's unfortunate because it is a masterpiece in its own right. Let's see. Check out the email address. I think uh, Ground Control is going to cover that one, Bill. Okay, got that. I guess I better pin this one. Pin. Can, I, can a Christian, would you, um, Matt Leah, regardless, Taranta, cool, and he's <laughs> civil authority who refuses to acknowledge Christ and his law. You know, we need to figure fi fix something about that autocorrect. It really hates you, Bill. Right. Mike, as a point, Mike can speak to agricultural practices because he runs a farm and uh, a very uh, much one that's uh, his practices are scripturally informed, therefore he respects the land. Rushton, he says, we have, tend to be detached from the land and therefore think it's perfectly fine to throw all sorts of chemicals and stuff at it uh, and ignore God's laws about the land, and that's certainly an error. So, you know, Mike is in a good position to speak to that. I think we answered that question about tyranny. We answered that question. Oh, well, thank you for that. Oh, goodness, the hour went by that fast? All right, so folks, I'm very sorry. I didn't realize how quickly the hour went. It gets shorter and shorter all the time. Yeah. All right, yeah, and uh, there you go. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. The one you just read was rewritten by the author and you've already handled it. Very good. Yes, thank you for the rewrite, but the, uh, the original is amusing. That shows you that sometimes you do need textual criticism, at least for um, these broadcasts. Blessings to all of you. Thanks for listening. Sorry, we only, only got to a few of the uh, live questions. Uh, again, ask.calcedon.calcedon.edu. Send your questions in advance. We'll get to them first. And I uh, hope to catch up with you all at the uh, Book of the Month Club broadcast tomorrow when Mark Rushtuni talks about Freud with Andrea Schwartz. See you all then. Thanks all. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.